This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Sonos, maker of premium sound systems and a company that knows exactly what the podcast and music lovers in your life want most this holiday season. Do you want to know what that is? It's brilliant sound that they can listen to anywhere. And that's exactly what they get with the Sonos Move, a portable smart speaker that delivers detailed sound and rich bass in every kind of room and outdoors. I know this because I've been listening to my Sonos Move everywhere I can. In the morning, it's podcasts in the show. Outside Magazine and PRX. During the workday, it's at my desk, where I have the move sitting on its charging base and teed up with my Please Help Me Get Stuff Done playlist. For my afternoon break, I bring it to the backyard basketball court for pick-me-up tunes while I try to beat my hoops-obsessed eight-year-old in games, of course. And in the evening, it's in my bedroom, playing chill-out music to help me wind down. What makes the Sonos Move sound so good in so many different spaces is automatic true play tuning, which uses the speaker's microphones to adapt the move to the unique acoustics of where you are and what you're listening to, which means music, podcasts, audiobooks, and everything else sound the way they were intended. The move works with all your streaming services, and control is simple with the Sonos app, Apple AirPlay 2, or your voice, using Amazon Alexa or Google Assistant while on Wi-Fi. And when you're outside and beyond the reach of Wi-Fi, you can switch to Bluetooth mode in seconds, while the battery lasts for up to 11 hours. Learn more about why the Sonos Move is the perfect gift for this holiday season at Sonos.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. You know that feeling you get when you see a photo of an amazing location and you're overwhelmed with the desire to go there? It becomes an instant fantasy. I get this when I see a picture of a tropical island surrounded by turquoise waters with maybe a couple sailboats anchored behind the protection of a reef. Cliched, I know. But hey, that's what does it for me. For others, though, it's the mountains that call to them. Around six years ago, a filmmaker named Anthony Baneo shared an image of a spectacular snow-covered mountain wall with a group of professional skiers, including Cody Townsend. He sent us this photo of this wall that we ended up calling the Facebook wall because we shared it in a private Facebook group. And it was a rad looking wall, amazing couloirs, amazing terrain. And that was what drew us in. So the photo did exactly what Anthony Baneo had intended. It convinced Cody and two other elite skiers to join an expedition to Svalbard, a group of remote islands in the Norwegian Arctic. But skiing the Facebook wall would be just one part of the trip. The main goal was something that Cody was not all that excited about, to take a photo of a skier in front of a total solar eclipse. As cool as that might sound, Cody knew it would mean a lot of standing around to make maybe one pre-planned turn on a modest slope. It wouldn't be cool for him. It would just be cold. Still, the lure of the Facebook wall was enough. 
we had some random picture from the middle of nowhere of a, a face that had never been skied before. It's like, we just want to go ski that. The thing is, though, the reasons we choose to take on big challenges in the outdoors often don't end up being what makes the experiences so memorable. You might go into the mountains with dreams of perfect powder turns, but come away marveling about something you saw in the sky. This is why so many of us keep going back. For today's episode, we are going to share a pair of stories about people finding unexpected delight in the wilderness, having remarkable days that they didn't really plan for and that changed them in ways they never imagined. Because after the year we've all had, it feels good to hear about better times and to be reminded of the kinds of decisions that lead to the most enlightening moments. When I first started skiing, I just was obsessed with it in any shape or form. Cody Townsend grew up in the Lake Tahoe area of Northern California. He was a dedicated racer through his teen years. Then, as he got into his 20s, he became what's called a free skier. His job was to descend beautiful lines down big mountains for films and photo shoots. Jumping off cliffs, skiing pal, being in the backcountry, and spent the next about 10, 12 years kind of chasing that dream, going up to Alaska, and just kind of doing that very downhill performance style of skiing. It was fun. But as he reached his 30s, Cody was feeling a bit over it. I was a little burnt out at what I'd been doing, free ride style skiing. I'd kind of hit every goal I'd want to uh, want to hit, and I started looking outwards at more of these expedition style trips. It was the ideal moment for him to consider an invitation to go to Svalbard for a different kind of project. He'd still be performing for the camera, but this time the skiing was only part of the appeal. Unlike his past trips, he wouldn't be sleeping in a lodge and catching helicopter rides to the tops of peaks. This would be an extended wilderness adventure. That was kind of my first instance of like, I want to do this because I want to camp out on a glacier for 14 days for my first time ever. I'd only spent one night in a tent on the snow ever before that. And I looked to Svalbard as being like a kind of trial run, as being like, is this something you're going to like and or maybe potentially fall in love with? So when Cody got the invitation, he jumped on it. I even lied to get on the trip because they asked if I had winter camp before, and I kind of feigned that. I was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm totally, I, you know, I've winter camped. And we were going out into Svalbard, being uh, the, the closest landmass to the North Pole in winter. And we were planning on camping on a glacier, so I have no climbing and winter camping experience, and I'm going to one of the harshest environments in the world. So I knew my learning curve was going to be really steep, and how was I going to be able to hold up physically and mentally while sleeping in a tent and a sleeping bag when it's minus 21 all the way down to minus 50 degrees. The expedition team would include fellow free skiers Brody Levin and Chris Rubens, filmmaker Anthony Beneo, plus another cinematographer, a local guide and doctor, and the guy who dreamed up the whole project, an eccentric 24-year-old photographer named Ruben Graba. Ruben is kind of one of the nerdiest people in the ski industry, and he's kind of like almost genius level to the point where he's kind of almost a little socially awkward because I think he's just so incredibly smart. Ruben had developed a rather unique aesthetic in the world of ski photography. For him, 
capturing an image of a skier in front of an eclipse, it had become an obsession. It was a dream of his. He was kind of into a lot of these uh, abstract shots, a lot of like astral shots, being that it involves some sort of like element, being either the Northern Lights, which he'd captured before, or a skier in front of a, a nebula. And so he was into those kind of photos, and he saw that there was going to be a, a full total solar eclipse and in Svalbard in March. And so he pitched the idea. Rubin presented the concept to the gear maker Solomon, and they liked it. But Solomon saw an opportunity to get more than a few stunning photos. Documenting Rubin's quest to get an eclipse shot would make for a great ski film and also give them something of value if Rubin didn't succeed, which was the most likely scenario. Svalbard is typically overcast in March, and the total eclipse would last only around two and a half minutes. Even one stray cloud could ruin the shot. Rubin was well aware of his slim odds, as he made clear in one early team meeting that was included in the film. So the really, really difficult one, which I don't really expect to try, would be getting a person inside the surface of the sun, and the surface of the sun would be golden color and everything else would be pitch black. But before the team would even have a chance of capturing a once-in-a-generation action shot, they had to endure the kinds of challenging conditions that one only encounters in an Arctic winter. Camping when you're uh, sleeping on a glacier and when there's 80 to 90 percent humidity because we're right on the ocean is incredibly cold. We had minus 50 double layered sleeping bags and you know I brought pretty much every insulating thing I could have brought and almost still wasn't enough and even though you're bundled up like uh, like the kid from you know Christmas story you still feel cold. Besides a tolerance for the cold, the team members had to have a great deal of patience. They had booked a full month in Svalbard, so they would have time to test their gear on the glacier, get accustomed to the conditions, and conduct numerous scouting trips into the backcountry. We had to know exactly where the eclipse was going to be in the horizon and then match some sort of mountain feature that we could make a turn that wasn't just blue ice because there was a lot of blue ice on the trip so that we could pull off this photo. For the skiers especially, all the strategizing and planning took the joy out of the adventure. There was little time for any skiing. And so, as the day of the eclipse approached, instead of feeling excited, they were feeling done. We'd been freezing our butt off, and it was just kind of like, come on, just get this over with. To the point where we were all a little soured on the project. We hadn't really gotten to ski much. Um, we really hadn't got to explore the zone very much. We'd just been within this one little place trying to find this one shot. So I was just ready to get it over with um, at that point. We just were wanted to move on as skiers and being a part of this trip and suffering and freezing to do something more than just ski modeling for one turn. On the morning of the eclipse, the sky was clear, but the winds were howling. The temperature with wind chill 
is estimated at minus 55 degrees. We woke up that day and the first thing that was said to us was our doctor slash guide for the trip was like, today is the coldest day yet. It is our windiest day yet. We have to be really careful because we're going to be standing on ridgelines waiting for this eclipse to happen. And people could lose toes and fingers and noses today. So there was that on top of the anticipation. I could see it on Ruben's face, like he was just a ball of nerves. The rest of the team was all just kind of ready and relaxed to get it done. But here is a, a multi-week expedition completely on his shoulders. And he was just absolutely nervous as any person I've ever seen before. The skiers made their way out to the ridgeline that Ruben had determined would be the best spot for the photo, while Ruben headed to his planned vantage point. And then came the really hard part, waiting for the eclipse to begin. We all started getting really cold really quickly. So we ended up just starting to like ski down three turns, put our skis over our shoulder and run back up the mountain to try and stay warm. But there was a point when, you know, we all lost complete feeling in our feet. Chris Rubens, got frostbite that day, ended up having a small, like little kind of nickel-sized piece of toe that turned black. But we were all, you lost your feeling and your toes very quickly, and it was impossible to come back. The eclipse would take some 30 minutes to develop, with the moment of totality starting at 10, 12 a.m. As the process began to unfold, things suddenly looked bleak. The exposure level of the world just dropped a little hair. And right then, this cloud came right in front of the eclipse. And it was like, oh, no, is this really going to happen? Are we just invested a month of time and $100,000 expedition and one cloud? The one cloud in the sky is going to ruin it. But we had some time still. And as it started developing, as it started to get a little darker and the hair darker, as we started waiting in more and more anticipation and preparing for it, the cloud just miraculously vanished and it, it was like oh thank god and at that point we knew like it was on and what kind of happened next I definitely never could have prepared for and we had our special eclipse glasses on those little cheap mirrored looking things and we could see it getting closer and closer to where the moon finally blocked the sun then all of a sudden you could just see it and you saw this halo of glow uh, around the moon and we took off our glasses and at that point it was just we all like spontaneously lost our mind we all just started screaming like into nothingness because we it just was this like visceral deep emotional kind of feel where the entire world changed in the flash of your eyes in the in the middle of day it was nearly dark the the stars started coming out and if you looked on the snow there was like waves of red and purple that were like flowing as if it was almost the snow was kind of on fire and i i can't describe it other than it was deep inside your body. You just started feeling like, what is happening right now? It was kind of at that moment when I saw the stars come out, you could see the, the planets in alignment. And like, this is the first time I felt like I was standing on a planet hurtling through space. It felt like a sci-fi movie. It felt like something out of like Star Wars. We all of a sudden got a radio chatter because we're all screaming that like, we got to go, 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 because we've been probably burning 30 seconds just marveling at it all and we just started skiing 
We'd go three turns down the ridge line, race back up on behind the ridge line. The next year would go. It was two minutes of like utter chaos and all that anticipation and all that kind of like sourness that I had on the trip evaporated as like the whole world changed in front of our very eyes and at that moment we're like that was incredible that was worth coming halfway across the world and camping on a glacier to see it truly was like this unbelievable moment on a on a really special trip. So Ruben had gotten his dream shot, plus a bunch of other really amazing images. This meant that the skiers were now free to play in the mountains, which they did for another week. For Cody, the trip had a lasting effect. Because of the eclipse, but even more so because of how difficult his days in Svalbard had been, and how getting through them changed his relationship to the mountains. I remember the first four days of it being really tough and beginning used to camping and used to those kind of cold temperatures and putting your ski boots on in the morning when they're kind of still damp and they're minus 27 degrees outside. It's it's not easy. But then after those four days passed, all of a sudden it became normal. And I all of a sudden started to really appreciate the, the time spent out there. And it, it was kind of the first catalyst of being like, well, this was one of the harshest trips you could go on. And if you survive that, then there's probably a lot of other things that are going to be a lot easier than this. I think reward that is like guarded by challenge is just that much sweeter of a reward. So when you're going to these places and there's unique challenges in front of you and you can overcome them, it's just, it's so much more meaningful and it just feels so much more valuable to you. And you end up just enjoying it more. In the years since the eclipse, Cody has transitioned from being a free skier performing in films to becoming a dedicated ski mountaineer, taking human-powered expeditions into the wilderness. In early 2019, he announced that he was going to attempt to ski every line documented in the celebrated book 50 Classic Ski Descents of North America. The project would have him heading to remote routes spread across the continent. As of late November, he'd completed around 30 of them. Oh, and one more thing about the eclipse photo that Ruben took in Svalbard. It was a sensation, as you might expect. A skier silhouetted in front of a stunning celestial event. People loved it. But which skier was in the photo? We have no idea who the skier is, and that was on purpose. We, as the three skiers, kind of decided we don't want to figure it out, and we were all in this together. So we all decided to not try to take any individual credit for that photo and give it mainly to Ruben, who was the the guy in front of the lens. So uh, it was kind of an interesting thing because quite often pro skiers seem as egotistical and want the glory but in in that trip alone we were very focused on like now this was a this was a team trip and a team effort so we we don't know who is the main photo so i have my my guesses but we still have yet to try to actually figure out because i think we just want to leave it as a team shot after the break we hear from an endurance athlete who found herself way way outside her comfort zone which made her scared, but also inspired, and eventually stronger. At the top of the episode, we talked about the Sonos Move, the premium portable smart speaker 
that makes the perfect gift this holiday season for music and podcast lovers. Speaking of love, you know how it feels when you find the one present that will make that very special person in your life really happy? That's exactly the way I felt when I first listened to the Sonos Move. I knew instantly that this was the gift I had to get for my co-producer Robbie Carver, who composes all the music for this show and does everything possible to make me sound much better than I do in person. Robbie is an audio obsessive, so I know he'll go gaga over the Move's custom-designed woofer and tweeter, which balance deep bass and the highest frequencies. And I bet he'll be stunned by how the automatic True Play tuning adapts the speaker's equalizer to what he's playing and where he's listening. Especially because the weatherproof and drop-resistant Move will sound so good out on that sweet deck that he's always talking about. As a man who has little patience for overly complicated technology, I'm certain that Robbie will appreciate how easy it is to set up the speaker and also switch back and forth from Wi-Fi to Bluetooth mode. And as a guy who's always seeking out new sounds, I know for sure that he'll really dig Sonos Radio, which allows him to stream thousands of stations, including live radio from around the world and original programming, all for free through the Sonos app. By the way, Robbie, that's where I found that song I was telling you about for the next episode. I hope you're still open to doing something like that. The Sonos Move. It's the perfect gift for that very special sound guy in your life. Learn more at Sonos.com. Cody Townsend's trip to Svalbard started when he saw a photograph of a mountain wall that he just had to ski. For ultra runner Claire Gallagher, an adventure in Alaska began with a phone call. It was early June of 2019, and Claire was at home in Boulder, Colorado, finishing up the final weeks of training for the Western States Endurance Run, a 100-mile event in California's Sierra Nevada mountains that is one of the most grueling foot races in the world. Claire had won another infamous race, the Leadville 100, back in 2016 when she was an unknown 24-year-old. She'd since become a professional runner, and as pros do, she was carefully tapering her workouts in the lead-up to Western States. And then her phone rang. On the other end was Tommy Caldwell, arguably the best rock climber on the planet. He calls me up, was like, hey, Claire, like we have this opportunity to go to this Arctic Indigenous Climate Summit, and then we're gonna do a running trip in the Arctic afterwards. And since you're a runner, like, you know, do you want to go? <laughs> and I'm like, what? The summit Tommy was talking about was going to be held in Fort Yukon, an Alaskan village north of the Arctic Circle and just outside the boundaries of the vast Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It's an extremely difficult place to get to. And so in my mind, I'm like, oh, Tommy's probably talking about a trip that's like two years from now, you know, because <laughs> it's such a big trip. And he goes, yeah, but they'll only like catches. We'd have to leave in 10 days. Claire had to think it over. It was a remarkable opportunity. Fort Yukon is one of the primary homes of the Gwich'in Alaska natives, who, along with environmentalists, have worked for decades to prevent oil companies from drilling in the refuge. The land there provides crucial calving grounds to the porcupine caribou herd, which are immensely important to the Gwich'in. Claire had become an outspoken advocate for action on climate change, 
and this was a chance for her to hear from people on the front lines. But Claire also knew that going on the trip meant that she was most likely giving up on her race. Basically, I was signing away any chance of really caring about Western states at that point. You know, if you have big, big travel before a 100-mile race, like, you're probably not going to do that great. And I was okay with it because the opportunity to go up to the Arctic and learn from the Gwich'in nations who are seeing climate change change their lives so, so rapidly is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So, yeah, I, I was like, I'm there. Initially, Claire thought that she'd be able to continue some training while in Alaska. After all, Tommy had told her that after the climate summit, they'd be doing a running trip. Another top professional runner, Luke Nelson, was coming along. The only problem was, running in the Arctic Refuge, it's not actually possible. It very, very quickly became clear in our frantic planning for this expedition, which was going to be about 10 days in the Arctic Refuge, that there would be no running at all. Um, And this is after I have committed to the trip. One, there aren't trails in the refuge. It's, It's one of the most remote, wild landscapes on planet Earth. The athletes reached out to ski mountaineer Kit Delorier, known for being the first woman to ski Mount Everest and also for advocacy on behalf of the refuge, where she had spent a good amount of time. Her take? You're definitely not going to be running there. She was like laughing at the thought of us actually running because she goes, yeah, the fastest pace I can pull up there is probably like a mile and a half per hour. They settled on another approach. They'd climb Mount Hubley, which at just under 9,000 feet is the second tallest peak in the Brooks Range. Then they drop down the other side and pack raft on rivers winding across the tundra. Joining them would be Austin Sidak, a photographer and elite climber. Once they arrived in Fort Yukon, Claire found the Arctic summer mind-bending. Then there was the climate summit, which was inspiring but also exhausting. So we're there in the summer equinox and these days completely mesh together because time kind of stops up there. Like it's right out 24 hours a day. The the darkest it gets is maybe at like 2 or 3 a.m. I was pretty emotionally fried because it it was one of the most educational weeks of my life, listening to these Gwich'in hunters and people who lived all over the Arctic talk about how climate change is impacting them in a very real, terrifying way. So it was heavy, you know, And, and then we get dropped into the refuge for this expedition. It just was like the most remote I've ever been. A few days into the trip, as the team began ascending a steep scree slope on the base of Mount Hubley, Claire found herself feeling miserable. I know I'm a professional trail runner, but I suck at walking over loose rocks. And we're not just talking like loose rocks on like a 14er in Colorado. We're talking a landscape that is just feels so much. I don't really want to use the word dangerous, but it is because if you mess up there, It's hours, if not days, before a a plane can get to you. Like, you can't twist your ankle. Like, you just can't. It was intense, and the conditions were only getting more difficult. Can't even remember how many miles it was. Maybe, like, five miles of scree on a very kind of steep slope with a rushing river in between us. So it's like a V-shaped gully 
and we're on one side of that V and there's a river below. And I was kind of crying to myself in the back. Tommy and Luke were always like so far ahead and I'd just be like, I don't know how they're going so fast. Like this is, this is awful. <laughs> I'm like, how did I get stuck with like three of the world's best athletes in their terrain? You know, like literally they're running across these scree fields. And I'm like, how did I land myself in this position? And it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, Claire, like pull your weight, you know, don't like mess this up. We had to cross some pretty dangerous river crossings and they were like throwing my bag and, and we were all jumping and it was just like, hope you make it. <laughs> you know? um, and I remember Luke turned to me at one point and he goes, well, this trip is no longer casual. The photographer, Austin Sidak, hadn't slept much in the days before the expedition, so he hung back with Claire a lot, which helped her feel better. I knew I was in good company when Austin took a instant coffee packet and put it into his water bottle. <laughs> it was just like, I really need this right now. And someone said, do you know what time it is? And it was like around midnight. <laughs> the team camped out in a clearing, and the next day, they headed for the summit. We hit snow, and that's where I was able to get back more into my athletic groove. Luke and I were post-holing up a scree field, and I'm just like streaming sweat down my face. The sun is beaming. You know, we're getting burned. Like, it's the first time I've been hot in a week. And it was great. I was like, all right, like, I am a part of this team. I'm not holding this team up. This, this is good. And I think this solidified that everything's going to be okay. Like, you have the skills to be here. You have the energy and the and the positivity. You know, I think that's key. It's like, okay, if I can't, like, be as fast on this free field, well, I just then need to be really positive and make sure they want to be around me. <laughs> Mount Hubley is not a technically challenging climb. The team reached the top in hiking boots, though Tommy short-roped Claire and Luke up the final pitches. Then came a very long descent to the foothills on the other side of the Brooks Range. At one point, they reached a snowfield and decided to glissade down it, a technique that basically has you sliding on your butt and using an ice axe as a steering rudder and also a brake, at least when you do it correctly. Everyone had gone before me, and I was going down this luge, you know, because all their butts had, like, made the, the glissade path really smooth. So I was flying, and something got clipped. I don't know if it was my ice axe or my foot, but I, like, tomahawked for at least, like, 30 seconds. And I, I stood up, and I was so disheveled and so upset. I was like, oh, my God, like, that was so dangerous. You know, I could have snapped my leg. And I look over at the boys and Tommy's like eating a cliff bar <laughs> and they're all talking. And I was like, did you guys see that? And they're like, what? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I can't handle this like too much. Like <laughs> you people are too much. <laughs> After roping up again to cross a glacier, the team made camp and they celebrated by giving Tommy Caldwell the first tequila shot of his life. Like, of course, Austin had brought some tequila like in a water bottle and Luke and I had brought two limes <laughs> and 
And we're like, we have to make use of this. Like we just brought this over the second highest peak in the Brooks range. And, you know, and I think we're celebrating like so much, you know, we're celebrating the power of, of our week with the Gwich'in and trying to really learn this area and, and give it the respect it deserves. And the way, you know, we did that was Tommy had his little tequila shot. <laughs> we were just so happy to be with each other. We were so proud of everyone on the team. It was just like the coolest team dynamic. I really couldn't have asked for anything better. But that's not the end of Claire's story she still had a race to run. After the team rafted across the tundra, she flew home less than a week before the start of the Western States 100. Basically, I went into this run like it doesn't even matter. Like I just had the most insane experiences of my life. Like this this trip just, you know, I can't like hold my head and like shake it hard enough like it was wild what what we experienced and and then weirdly so racing a hundred miles on a trail felt very normal I was worried that I wouldn't finish because I developed a bit of an Achilles niggle over in Alaska and I was like, it's okay. I'm going to start the race. If I can finish, that's my ultimate goal. I don't care how I do. And yet, there was something about the trip to the Arctic that had prepared Claire, both physically and mentally, for a long run. The Western States 100 begins at 5 a.m. And almost from the starting line, she was in second place in the women's field, holding steady behind the favorite, Courtney DeWalter. It stayed that way until well into the night, when... At mile 80, DeWalter dropped out with a hip injury. And then my competitiveness like properly kicked in. It almost was like an 80 mile warm up. But once I got into first place, I was like, okay, you can't mess this up. Claire felt increasingly confident as the miles ticked by. She had a pacer running with her and he couldn't see any headlights behind her. So she appeared to have a big lead on the next runner. Then at mile 93, she suffered her own injury. I was crying because I was convinced I had broken my foot. I'm like, I am so over this. But I also, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I can kind of like jog walk it and I'll be fine. And it was just really naive of me to think that. Moments later, her pacer spotted another runner coming up behind them. Brittany Peterson is uh, hot on my tail, like charging. And I found out after the fact that she had been turning her headlamp off to come up on me and surprise me. So this is like high stakes ultra running, right? And in that moment that she got even with me, she actually passed me. I flipped a switch I did not know I had. Basically, I forgot all the pain I was in and I started strategizing. I was like, okay, I'm gonna stay with her for a mile. We're gonna get to an aid station at mile 94. I'm gonna drop all my excess weight, like drop a soft flask, drop my visor, like anything extra. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sprint for six miles and I will not look back. And we get to this aid station. I kind of look at her. We kind of actually jostle. It almost looked like we elbowed each other and I'm gone. 
like I think my brain was so exhausted at that point I was just like you are gonna run as fast as your body can run and I don't care if you're more pain than you've ever been in your life like I peed while I was running I have like coca-cola all over me like kind of foaming at the mouth just so hell-bent on getting to that finish line first and it paid off I, I ended up running the second fastest time in history at the finish line a friend of Claire's interviewed her in front of the cheering crowd. She said, you know, weren't you like just in Alaska? And I don't know what I said before this, but I, I said, you know, everyone should call their reps and ask to, to protect the Arctic refuge. And like the fact that I was able to say that in such an emotionally taxed state and physically will be like one of my proudest athletic achievements. <laughs> You can learn more about Claire Gallagher's athletic achievements and her environmental advocacy at Claire.run. Claire is spelled C-L-A-R-E. Cody Townsend is online at CodyTownsend.com. You can watch the 30-minute film about Ruben Kraba's quest to photograph skiers in front of an eclipse at TV.Solomon.com. It's easy to find there. Just search it by name, Eclipse. This episode was produced by me, Michael Roberts, and outside associate editor, Abby Baronian, who interviewed both Cody and Claire. Our music is by Robbie Carver. This episode was brought to you by Sonos, maker of the Sonos Move, a portable smart speaker that delivers detailed sound and rich bass in every kind of room and outdoors. Learn more about why it makes the perfect gift this holiday season at Sonos.com. We'll be back next week.